What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Brooklyn Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Healy, and today we have a very special guest, the managing editor of Ring Magazine, Tom Gray. Thanks so much for joining. You're welcome. All the way from Scotland, we're making it work. Doesn't matter the time difference. I'm in Miami, you're in Scotland. We're making it happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd rather be in Miami, but I'll just need to settle for Scotland. <laughs> I know this is quickly turning into the Miami boxing podcast. I've been down here for quite some time, uh, working out of the Fifth Street gym with a lot of the fighters and doing some podcasts with them. So that's been a blast. But um, awesome. excited to have you down here. I think uh, on the note of the Fifth Street gym, of course, with its history around Muhammad Ali, on this day in boxing, boxing history, Foreman defeated Norton, obliterated yep. in two rounds. Um, obviously, at the time, this was before George Foreman ended up fighting Ali. Everyone thought Foreman was invincible after obliterating Norton. Would love to just hear you talk about that moment in boxing history. Well, actually, I put up the uh, like an on this day on the website earlier on this morning, just when I, when I get up. But yes, um, I think that the most spectacular thing about that um, is that Norton was obviously um, an elite level heavyweight at the time, had split two decision fights with Ali right before this, and was the number one contender. And for Foreman, I suppose you know the warning signs were there that it could be a quick fight because. He'd beaten Joe Frazier in, in convincing fashion. But given, you know, the way Ken Norton was made, how physically imposing he was, like just, you know, it looked like he was carved out of granite, Ken Norton. To go in there and, and you know, he was obviously, he, he looked ready for the fight, looked in immaculate condition as always, and he just got absolutely, like you say, obliterated. You know, that I think the first round's pretty competitive, but really... You know, George is just having a look at him there. He's not he's not looking to let anything go. As soon as he opened up, the fight was over. Um, but the running narrative around Ken Norton was that he could give boxers like Ali and Larry Holmes all the trouble in the world. Um, but against punchers, you know, he didn't have the, the movement um, to, to get out of the way, always seemed to be in the firing line. And this kind of cross... Um, style that he had, you know, Ali and Holmes were, were a bit thrown off by that at times, particularly actually Ali, he really struggled to break through it. But I spoke to uh, to George Foreman about it and he, he just essentially said, he essentially said that he punched his way through that defence and, you know, once he did that, Norton was there for the taking and yeah, it's, it's one of his, it's one, arguably the best performance of his career, George Foreman, I think. A lot of people forget, I think, um, prior to the Ali-Foreman fight, um, how invincible Foreman was viewed by the public, obviously way before, you know, our, our time. But looking back on the, on, the, on the tapes and the history of boxing, yeah. um, it, I think it's important to understand, like, the, the atmosphere of the public or the public opinion at that time. And that's what makes... Um, you know, Ali's greatness, just that that next level. People love seeing um, someone who has no chance in the public eye win and come back and yeah. especially later in their career. And, you know, I think we have some examples of that uh, today or brewing today. I mean, on a, on a smaller scale, you know, Tyson Fury making his comeback against Deontay Wilder, I think, you know, a little different, but but similar in the sense where the public eye thought he had no chance. A lot of people thought, um, and I'm talking about his first fight with Deontay Wilder. A lot of people thought it was just too soon, too much. I didn't. Lost. Um, I definitely didn't. <laughs> but you, yeah. So, so tell me about that. Cause I mean, I would say a lot of the general public in the U S and probably a bias towards Deontay Wilder at the time, um, being right. a U.S. fighter, but a lot of people didn't think that Tyson Fury, was going to be able to last, um, especially after losing all of that weight and the shape he came in at? Well, you know, in my opinion, what we the information that we did have coming into the fight was, yes, there was a, a significant layoff, but, and I could be wrong here, Tyson was 28 or 29 years old when he came back. Now, 
it was a monumental struggle, obviously, to shift the weight. It took a huge amount of time, but he did it over the best part of a year. A couple of um, comeback fights. Uh, Pianetta was one in Sefer Seferi. So guys that, you know, that aren't even in his on his wavelength in terms of in terms of skill. But for the second fight, I think he was about this was Pianetta. He was about 260 pounds for that, which was kind of average where he'd been, you know, pre-layoff. So he got the weight off. Um, and Pianetta a couple of times in the fight, he showed off some defensive finesse. Um, Tyson did. And I liked the look of him, even though it wasn't a very important fight. But I, I always felt coming into the fight that Deontay Wilder was a one-armed bandit. You know, it was right hand or bust. I'd seen him outboxed against opponents that weren't in Tyson Fury's level. I thought that the the threat of Deontay Wilder would be enough to get Tyson Fury to go up another two or three levels. Just a much better boxer. Um, And what he's got in his favour that Tyson has is that he he focuses on taking away your best weapon. With Klitschko, he took away the jab. A lot of people think that Klitschko came out in that fight and just didn't throw punches because he just didn't feel like it. That's nonsense. Tyson basically kept it at a range where Klitschko was was reticent to let the jab go, and if he couldn't get the jab off, he couldn't get the right hand in. And he basically he put Vladimir Klitschko's hands in his pockets. It was a dreadful fight, but he did what he had to do to win. So coming into the the Wilder fight, what Tyson needs to do is avoid getting caught with a right hand bomb that will knock him out. Now. Full credit to Deontay Wilder because he almost did knock him out, but almost isn't good enough. And sooner or later, you're going to run into someone that you can't keep down. And that's essentially what happened with the whole, not just Wilder Fury 1, but but all three fights. You know, we've seen it in the third fight. He landed his best shot again. We just can't keep him down. He's a great, he's a terrific puncher, but he's not a great finisher. And that's been proven with Tyson on two occasions. Second fight was a wipeout, but... Um, yeah, I was confident of Tyson winning the first fight on points, and I picked him to win fights two and three by by knockout. Didn't expect the third fight to be as difficult as it was. I mean, it was the stuff of nightmares. Deontay almost got him, but Tyson Fury's the better man. I think he proved that by far. No doubt, no doubt, and he uh, much deserving of the ring belt. And to get back to the ring and the, and and um, not only the magazine but obviously the importance of the belt and you were able to deliver that to him in person. Yeah. I'd love for you to educate people who might not be familiar of the importance of the ring belt, what it really means, especially in the current alphabet soup that we've had over the. I brought one years. on for you. There I you go. I got. I, I don't like bring it too close because this one has seen better days, to be quite honest. But th- this is actually the one that. Um, Terence Crawford was presented, Shinsuke Yamanaka, Jorge Linares. So there's a bit of history attached to this, excuse me, this generic belt. Very cool. Yeah, to to your point, um, excuse me, um, it's it's the amount of history that's connected to it. Jack Dempsey was the first ring magazine champion, um, you know, an iconic, you know, sportsman and and an iconic athlete you know of of his time Uh, and it's just followed you know the lineage has went right through if you just stick it heavyweight right through Dempsey, Lewis, Marciano, Patterson, Liston, Ali, Frazier, Foreman I could go on and on and on but you know just in that one division and the fact that it's also um, it just looks I think a bit different from perhaps all the governing body championships um, and it's a sign that maintains its place has been a sign that if you if you own that belt in your division you're the best fighter in that division and that is uh, important these days when it's there's so much politics going on most definitely and i wanted to ask you too i i believe in the early 2000s or there was a period in the 90s where the belts weren't given out and then in the early 2000s they you, you began giving them out again yeah. i guess yeah. what was the uh what happened during those times? Well, that, that came down to, it was ownership. So whoever had taken the magazine over at the time um, decided that they would still maintain the, the rankings, but they took out the championship policy. So over that period, uh, it, there was there was no ring champions and a lot of terrific fighters. I mean, Evander Holyfield never, never held a, a ring magazine championship, which when you think about it, 
undisputed cruiser, undisputed heavy, and, and never had the, the Ring Magazine Championship, which I don't want to say embarrassment. It's just, you know, it was before my time. It doesn't sit well with me. Evander did win, and he ended up winning the uh, Fighter of the Year. I think twice, 96 and 97, and I think he'd won it in the 80s as well. Um, so he's got the belt, but he didn't actually get a champion, a divisional championship, which doesn't sit well. And there's, there's several other fighters. I think James Tony is another one you're talking about. Doesn't get much better than that. So, yeah, because of the ownership at the time, but when, um, when Oscar bought the magazine uh, over, brought, bought the ring brand, he reintroduced the championship belt. I think among the guys that were crowned almost immediately were Roy Jones Jr., Lennox Lewis. Um, I think those guys were just basically given the title because they were undisputed at the time, I think, in their respective divisions. And then other guys would win them. Um, so, yeah, back on track and has been for the last 20 years. Yeah, and a couple of things. I, I want to I go back to Tyson Fury in a second, but uh, um, important to mention, you know, with Oscar... Uh, De La Hoya owning, uh, having ownership now. I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, but, um, you know, some people have something to say about that in terms of, oh, it's oh, as, as, as a lot of people thought. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to minimize it, but I was, I was actually, no, you don't have to. I was actually going to say, um, you know, from what I've read and, and, you know, you have a panel of people that sit and make these decisions. Um, you know, I personally don't think that it's a problem whatsoever. Um, but it would be interesting for you to dive into a little bit mm. of the background of how the decisions are made, the rankings, you know, everyone can go on the ring magazine website and check out rankings of every division and see who the current, um, ring magazine belt holders are, you know, right. I think they're very fair rankings. They're clearly better than all of the, uh, WBO, BC, all the alphabet rankings are all over the place. This is the most concise, fair honest ranking system. So for anyone to say that it's biased, I think is ridiculous. Well, thanks, Pat. Um, you're, in, you're in the minority, but I mean, look, it's, you know, basically it's the perception that something is going on, right? People like the idea of there being a scandal more than they actually probably believe there is some sort of scandal. And there's enough, you know, true, honest, you know, boxing guys with maximum integrity on the panel to where, you could never have like, infiltration from, from, from Golden Boy. They, they're just, Oscar and Core are too busy making fights in, in order to be, you know, coming in and every, every Sunday, every time we're making a ratings decision and say, well, no, we'll not put this guy at number five, we'll put him at number two. If, if people believe that that happens, then I, I don't know what to say. I've also had someone suggest that it will be a, an unconscious decision on our part because Golden Boy cut us a check. But, Yes, your point, it's all ridiculous. Um, it's a transparent, open democracy conducted by email every Sunday. And, um, you know, Anson, who is Anson Wainwright, who is a, a writer in Wales, begets, starts it off and then everyone comes in and offers their opinions. And at the end of it, um, what you have is a democracy. If, you know, X is to move into the number four position, according to six members of a 10-member panel, then that's what happens. Um, and other people disagree. The decisions don't always go my way. Um, it can be frustrating. There's times where decisions get made where I'm not happy. But you know that's what democracy is. It's um, you're not going to win them all. For sure. Let's go back to Tyson for a second. So when you awarded Tyson Fury with the belt, um, you know what an ama amazing experience for you to to do that. I'm jealous. You know, mm -hmm. what I mean, it was super cool. But also the lineal. I want to talk about the difference between the Ring Magazine belt and the lineal championship. Tyson Fury talks a lot about how you know I'm the lineal champion. No one's ever beat me. You know, the 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 Ring Magazine belt dates back now a hundred or the magazine's been around for a hundred years. I don't know how long they've been handing out belts. Maybe. 19, I think Dempsey got it in 1928. There you go. So, so, that's the top of my head. I'm sure, I think it was 20, 26 or 28. But the, but the Ring Magazine belt to me and the lineal championship mm. are really, you know, should be the most important belts. Um, they clearly symbolize, you know, the top man in the division. Um, for you to award that belt to Tyson Fury, what was the reaction to receiving it? Well, 
we've actually done it twice because um, he he beat Vladimir um, for it in 2015. Um, and myself and, and Gareth Davies, who is a, a contributor to the magazine as well, um, presented Tyson with the championship belt in Morecambe. And we drove down there and, and, uh, and gave him at the end. But he's a huge advocate of Ring Magazine because Tyson is a historian. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you've seen the video that I did with him where we discussed a bunch of heavyweights from the past. And he's doing it all off the cuff. Like he's not sat down and read books before or anything. Very, very uh, knowledgeable when it comes to the history of not just the heavyweight division, but all the divisions. So elated to, to win it once. He was then... Um, ironically, just as he'd come back, or he was about to come back, he was stripped of the title because of inactivity. So he had the first Deontay Wilder fight, which resulted in both guys ending up in the number one and number two positions on the Ring magazine rankings um, going into fight two. Tyson obliterated Wilder in the second fight, and the vacant Ring magazine championship was on the line. So it was funny, I remember saying to him, um, in a way, it worked out well for you that it was a draw in LA because if he'd won that fight, doesn't need to fight Wilder again, maybe doesn't, uh, maybe the rankings don't fall the same way, but because the rankings ended up one and two after the draw, he ended up getting another Ring Magazine championship and made history. And yeah, I went down to the house, um, went down to Morecambe again, um, had lunch with, uh, with Tyson and, and the family and took a couple of pictures and spoke to him about it. And over the moon to, to win, it means a lot to him. And it means a lot to us, that it means a lot to him. Um, the more you know, great fighters, elite level fighters that we have endorsing the best championship belt in the sport, the better. 100%. Um, interesting point, I think, to highlight as well is what you were mentioning, the importance of that first fight being a draw. That way they'd be ranked number one and two in the second fight for the belt to be on the line. Because yep. correct me if I'm wrong, but during that first fight, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm trying to remember timeline now. I don't know where Anthony Joshua would have been ranked at that moment, but if Tyson Fury were to beat Wilder, um, you know, that might have, was that a one versus three matchup? Was that a one versus four in that first? I'm trying to get my time. I'm trying to get my timeline right in my head. I think yeah. by that point, um, Anthony Joshua had been number one, but lost to Andy Ruiz, yeah. um, which yeah. brought him down. I can't remember how many spots. Tyson coming into the first Wilder fight was at the bottom of the ratings. Um, I don't even know if it was appropriate, to be honest, for Tyson to have come back into the ratings because he'd only had a couple of warm-up fights. But I think what he'd done in the past, you know, vaulted them into the, the, the bottom the bottom half of, of that. So, yeah, I think Deontay was number one um, after uh, Anthony Joshua had lost. And then Tyson putting on such... I mean, he won that fight in LA, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, he, he won it on points, so he should have. So he proves he's better than, than Wilder. And I know that the, the Wilder camp were very unhappy with us for putting Tyson at number one, but it's the kind of decision you've got to make. The same thing happened in 1999 when Evander Holyfield benefited from a draw against Lennox Lewis. After that fight, you know Lennox is the better man. And Lennox went over Evander Holyfield um, in, in much the same way. So sometimes, you know, you need to take judges scoring with a pinch of salt. And that was definitely one of the occasions where that was appropriate. Yeah, what a time. <laughs> what a time in the heavyweight division for, you know, my my era um, in, in boxing um, for, for, for Fury to be leading the charge now. But to come back, like, I'm just thinking about the, the mix at the top. Um, during that first matchup was crazy because Ruiz was right there. Joshua, you know, it's still very much alive, obviously Usyk um, now. And, and I'm really interested uh, maybe to hear about what you guys might have in store for Usyk and Lomachenko. Talk about storylines to write about and mm -hmm. highlight um, recently just announced both of them going to be entering fight camps, um, you know, leaving, leaving the Ukraine. So that's, you know, an amazing situation. Um, 
As far as the, I wanted to go back just to the covers of the Ring magazines for a second. Yep. I think super iconic. All of the covers, the artwork, the, the, the photographs, it's just, um, you know, each one is amazing for me to look at. I mean, I think all boxing fans enjoy it. But what yep. goes into the design and um, decision-making process of like the look of each cover? Um, <clears throat> quite an expansive question. I mean, if you, it, it depends really. Like what you're trying to do is, or the way I look at it is you're, you're trying to get fan, basically cater to what the fans are, are, are wanting at the time. You're also in the publications business and you want people to buy the magazine. And we've made errors in the past where that's where things haven't worked out for us. So tempted to say it, but I'm not going to because it'll just no. Ron Rousey was a mistake. Um, as, as, and that wasn't my decision. Um, but there's been other occasions as well where you you know you can you can get it wrong. Um, and you can't really afford to get it wrong. Like 12, 12 issues per year, you want to get it right um every single time. So like Try to think for good examples. When you've got iconic fighters that are active, Manny Pacquiao, for example, Manny would sell right out of the park. Canelo now um, is 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 pretty good as well for, for for moving magazines. The special issues that we introduced when the pandemic broke, starting with the four kings going through Manny Pacquiao again, uh, Mike Tyson, those guys transcend the sport. The four kings, Tyson, Pacquiao. Um, so what you end up with, I mean, we sold out on those. Um, Four Kings had to go to two, three print runs, I think, because it was so popular. So, yeah, you're, you're trying to cater for what the fans want. In terms of the design, it's either you're, you're looking at photography or you might get hold of an artist. Um, we use Richard Sloan quite regularly, who is, for my money, the best um, boxing artist in the, in the world. Um, Rich is fantastic and turned in so many amazing covers he did, Pacquiao did, Chavez, um, Ali Frazier, 50th anniversary, like he is, he's tremendous. So yeah, it's finding the balance, there's discussions, there's disagreements, and then eventually you all come together and, and, uh, and get, get, get things done. The latest issue is this one, which is Larry Holmes, which has been extremely popular and it's great to see the Eastern Assassin getting the attention he deserves. I was going to bring, I was just going to bring Larry Holmes up because after, you know, looking into uh, even your social media a little bit, it's, you can quickly see, uh, you know, your fandom of Larry Holmes. And, and he's definitely a guy that doesn't get enough shine. Um, yeah. Arguably, I don't even know if it's arguably, but the best jab ever. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> If you want to, if you want to talk to me about Larry Holmes and tell the people about his greatness, I'd be more than happy to listen. Yeah, I mean, I uh, funnily enough, when I initially get into boxing, which is probably very, very, very early nineties, um, I wasn't a fan of his because I became a boxing fan through Ali. Um, I read as much as I could on Ali. I collected all the fights on VHS, on bootleg before they became as available. This is long before the internet. And your introduction to Larry Holmes, if you're an Ali fan, is Larry Holmes kicking Ali's ass. So you're instantly on the defensive there um, until you learn a bit more about it. I mean, firstly, it was Ali that banged the drum for that fight. Holmes has got no choice um, but to fight Ali at that point. He was already struggling for rec recognition in Ali's wake. So you can't just turn around and say, like, I'm not fighting you anymore because I know you're done or I know you're washed up. So you learn, <clears throat> excuse me, you learn more about that as you go on. And then I started collecting Larry Holmes' fights. I'd, I'd collected as much Ali as I could and started watching Holmes and some of the performances and the performance level, his consistency going 48 and 0, 20 title defenses. He was he had a magnificent career and he was an exceptional pro, always ready. I'm not saying always 100%, but he was, if he wasn't 100%, he was near it. Um, always get himself into remarkable fighting shape. And when he was tested, you know, if he was put down or he was hurt, he rose. I mean, he got up from the greatest single right hand I think I've ever seen thrown by Ernie Shavers. Um, how he survived that, I'll never know. I mean, but he told me when I met him, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, he was actually knocked out on impact, but woke up when he hit the floor. Um, he just couldn't keep him down. And he wouldn't get up 
and try and survive. He would get up and, and like, try and hurt you back. Like he he took great umbrage at the fact that um, if you got a good punch in on him, he was um, he was a, he was an absolute warrior and as as good as as good a heavyweight I think is, has ever lived. Without a doubt. And acquiring all this boxing knowledge, I, I know you said, you know, how you became a fan um, kind of through Ali, but um, was it watching fights? Was it going back and looking at old fights? Was it reading publications? Was it reading old ring magazines before you were even there? Was <laughs> where, where were you downloading all of this information? Well, it was, I was actually, a mar- I was a martial arts, did martial arts for several years and I was actually a huge Bruce Lee fan. Um, and if you read up on Bruce Lee, particularly a lot of his philosophy, on the lead hand, he would consistently refer, Bruce Lee led right hand forward, but he would consistently refer to Ali's jab. So I'd, I would keep seeing Ali's name mentioned. And then a friend of mine brought a documentary called Champions Forever to my house. And I fell in love with Ali off of that. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you haven't, then you're, you're missing a treat. Still to this day, probably my, my favourite um, boxing documentary or, or close to it. There's been a lot of good ones. But um, Ali is very much at the forefront, but it was Frazier, Norton, Foreman, Holmes filled the rest of this up. So back in those days, like I say, it's pre-internet, pre-DVD. So if you wanted um, you know, fights to watch, it was VHS. You were sending out, I would send down to England and get all these fights coming back. Ali quickly went to obviously all five of those great champions. Then it was into like Leonard and Hearns, Duran, Hagler. Then you start watching, uh, this is this was in the early days of uh, Naz was starting to come around, Prince Nazim in the UK, Nigel Benn, Chris Eubank, Steve Collins. And then before you know it, it was literally like a turn round one day. I had a base knowledge on pretty much everyone that was that was fine maybe not the very very lower weights at that time but most of the divisions and then you're buying every boxing magazine so it was ring magazine boxing news boxing illustrated you know as much as you can possibly get a hold of i was going to the library i was reading books face reading books constantly and i did all that for years and years and years um and you end up with a good working knowledge and just so interesting i mean i don't think there's a sport where you've got the kind of stories and anecdotes the same way as what you've got in, in, in boxing, because it's just, it's the best sport in the world. I think we both know that. And, and it's, uh, you, you can never get enough of it. I mean, I, I could, doesn't matter if I've got 30 years in, in the sport, it, I could pick up a book and be just as interested reading on it now as I was then. Yeah, it's true. There's truly an end, endless amount of stories. I think that's what makes boxing history and, 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 you know, all of the divisions, interesting, even the, you know, it's rare, it's, uh, it's, it's rare to have that much data, like on a sport, I feel like there's so much history um, across all over the world, you know, it's not just as central to one place. I think uh, also what's, what is an interesting, interesting point is, um, you know, you guys are starting to cover MMA a little bit, um, at least I saw the MMA tab on the website and mm. I am a boxing fan. I do enjoy watching the UFC and other MMA promotions. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say here is MMA is very new. It's 20 years, you know, 25 years, whatever you want to okay. call it. I know it existed before the UFC, but you know, it's really yeah. been, it's really been on recently. The history yes. of MMA uh, still very much in its, early stages if you were to compare it to boxing you probably have to go back to i don't know the john l sullivan days like we're talking we're talking going way back where do you see the history being written in mma and if you had to guess on the 100 year anniversary of the ring or 200 year anniversary of the ring magazine are we going to have mma fighters um standing alongside boxing on every cover, <laughs> like uh, where um, no, I, I, I don't. I, you know, to, to me, the uh, the Ronda Rousey thing was that was that was a mistake. I think the ring should be reserved strictly for for boxing. Although we have an MMA tab on there, and we toyed with it for a while. Um, it made I think we had one story a month in the magazine for a short amount of time, but fans don't go for it. You know, straight boxing fans don't go for it. Like, I've got a martial arts mind. 
you know, my, my boy um, is at Taekwondo. He's, he's awesome. Um, and it was me that pushed him towards that just to kind of get his tools sharp. It's a good, it's a good uh, martial art for, for doing that. Um, I can't make the full transition to, um, to UFC because I just don't get the time. And I, I would because I've got an interest in it and I enjoy a good UFC fight, but I don't get, I just don't get the time. Um, I think that the sport is here to stay unequivocally, super strong, beats out boxing in the sense that you always seem to get competitive fights and the fights that the fans want to see, whereas boxing is just littered with so much politics and bullshit that we just are never done um, kicking ourselves in the teeth, you know, and it's relentless. And there's lessons to be learned from the way the UFC handles that part of, of things. But they will go on to have, probably not in my lifetime, but, you know, within 100, you know, how long has this been? About 20 years. Eight years from now, that sport will have a fantastic history and, and people will look back on it, maybe not with the same nostalgia, I think, that we can with the ring because it's just crossed so many social, cultural pieces of history. I, I can't see that being replicated now. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I think it ends up with its own unique history. I, I think it's, I admire the, the men and women that compete in it. Um, the skill level required is, is fantastic. Um, yeah, I think it'll have its own history. I don't think that, that the ring will be part of that history to any significant degree, though. Interesting. Yeah, the, um, as, you, as you said, boxing has struggled recently, having like the best fight the best. You know, there's some obvious answers to that regarding you know the different belts and organizations promoters preventing things like that happening however um you know last week i believe uh it was eddie hearn and dana white sitting next to each other at an event in ufc event in the o2 in london yeah. um, you know they've become very friendly dana white's always talked about maybe getting into boxing with zufa boxing potentially partnering with eddie hearn I think Eddie's been doing a great job recently putting on some amazing events over in the UK. Definitely seems to be, you know, on the forefront of, of, uh, you know, boxing promotion. He's definitely changing a lot of things. Do you feel that uh, maybe if it's with Dana or whoever, will we get to a system where there is one belt like the UFC or is it a <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's over. No, no, it's absolutely over. I mean, I like to me, this is a, and I'll give you my, my opinion on it. Boxing is so messed up at times that, and the governing bodies are complicit within that. Um, so much goes wrong, you know, whether it be judging decisions or you know, a new weight class is introduced when we don't need one or someone's made a number one contender for absolutely no reason. The governing bodies are wise to this. They know that they can make a decision, get plenty of heat, but within a week or two, something else will come up that's equally ridiculous and bury what's happened before. Am I making sense? Like you, you, can, you can have something that seems all the age and everyone's talking about it. It's getting terrible negative publicity. Like if you look at, um, the WBC creating bridge away. Mm -hmm. well, um, Maurizio knows that, yes, that's not going to go down well. People are going to say, oh, why do we need this? And there's a thousand reasons for it not to happen. But Maurizio just puts his feet up and waits. A couple of weeks later, there'll be a bad decision. Everyone in boxing moves over to that. And bridge away moves on. And everyone stops talking about it. So, like, the governing bodies know they can get away with murder. I mean, if, if you factor in like the, the WBA having multiple belts, multiple world titles in the same division. Yeah. Is yeah. something I didn't even think I would see that. When it came around, I scarce, I couldn't even believe it. I get it because TV companies want to say this is a world title fight, which brings more revenue, which goes to the fighter, which is the only good thing that comes out of it. But you dilute the term world champion. Like if you go back and... Uh, Read, I was reading a book on Emil Griffith uh, three or four years ago by Don McCray, amazing book. And it just hit me right in the face like a bucket of water that he's talking about Emil Griffith being champion. And he said, Emil was champion when only eight men in the world could say they're world champion. Now think how amazing it is that today, off the top of my head with a bit of maths, maybe what, 90 odd? 
90, 90 guys in, in, in boxing can say that they're a world champion. If it's not 90, it must be close to it. Um, when only eight men could say that all those years ago. And it's a shame that we need the term world title fight up in lights for that to be attractive to people because that's what it is. It's just down to money. And the governing bodies benefit from it because they're on sanctioning fee. They're on sanctioning fee. And, and don't get it twisted. They're not on sanctioning fee for their main titles. They're on sanctioning fee with anything that says WBO, IBF, WBA, WBC. Right? So if it's diamond, there'll be a sanctioning fee. You know, if it's gold, there'll be a sanctioning fee. They're not putting those titles or belts up for nothing. Um, so to go from that, to get everything consolidated to one belt, no chance. Not a chance. If anything, there'll probably be another governing body coming in within the next decade or so. <laughs> I wouldn't right, be surprised. Well. I, you know, we, we gotta we gotta stay positive. We gotta. We gotta <laughs> no, there's no not on that one. Like that's, yeah. that's just not. You know, I'm just I'm just being. I'm keeping real. If there was any if there was any good news to give you there, I would definitely do it. And that's one area where the UFC um, gets it bang on because they can learn from boxing's mistakes. You know, I, I love seeing a fighter win a governing body title. I, I you know I, I like Mauricio Suleiman. Um, he's 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 a really really nice man. He's cool to talk to, but. You know, there's decisions made there, and, and it's the same with Mendoza, WBA. No, you know, to more than one. The idea, right, there was a situation where Josh Taylor had just became undisputed junior welterweight champion of the world. And as he's walking out of the arena, like two weeks later, Gervonta Davis is fighting for a WBA junior, a WBA world title at the weight. That, that doesn't even make sense. So automatically, there is a dispute. And the reason there's a dispute is the WBA has created it. So it's, and, you know, Josh was as the 140-pound champion, but how dare you turn around and say, oh, there's, there's another world title fight with, just it kills me, as you can probably see. Yeah. The other, the other biggest factor that's frustrating for me is, you know, when you see a UFC card, they're able to stack the card. And, uh, you know, you're able to get four or five great fights, not one title fight or you know right. how it is in boxing and um <clears throat> that's just the uh that's the problem of having all of these networks promoters everything um you know imagine if we could have a weekend where you get tyson fury you know josh taylor gervonta davis canelo like you know what i mean you get them all yeah. in the weekend um then we're talking massive eyeballs like how are the fans not going to like that um but let's go back to one thing you mentioned uh, with Josh Taylor, poor judging decisions. Um, I want to <clears throat> ask you about. So, my opinion is Catterall got robbed. I think you know I'm not alone in that. When you look mm -hmm. at the the rankings on the Ring Magazine, I think they're very fair. I actually agree with almost all of them across weight divisions. But at 140, having Catterall ranked four, why why not have him ranked higher? Does he get penalized for the bad decision as well? What is the thought process there in the panel room after that fight? Yeah, good question. Um, all right, well, Josh is champion, right? Um, I had Jack Catterall, the winner, by four points on the night. We had requests to make Catterall the champion from fans and people that knew him, and, and I get it, but no. Right, that doesn't work. And I know you're not suggesting that. I'm just telling you where, you know, that this was this was what was coming at the ring afterwards. There's been poor decisions right down boxing history. Joe Lewis against uh, Walcott, fight one. Um, Lewis got dropped twice, get outboxed pretty much the whole fight um, and won a decision. It, the decision was so bad that Lewis actually left the ring before it was announced because he was expecting to lose. And he retained. Now, what do you do? Do you go back... 80 years and say that, no, really, Walcott won that fight and turn history around. So you can't do anything there. Um, Jack was unrated, I think, getting into the Taylor fight. Um, I think what I'd written on the ratings was that he performed like a top five rated junior welterweight, that in my opinion. Um, I can't, and I think, I, I think that's all I wrote. And then there's back and forth in relation to, um, is he better than Regis Progre? Is he better than Ramirez? 
did he prove that by having an, an awesome night against Josh Taylor? Um, boxing's about style, so you don't really know that. So I think, I think that the position is fair enough. Would I, would I have argued with him going three, two, one? Not majorly, um, because he turned in an absolutely sensational performance against a pound-for-pound pound elite-level guy. And Josh is getting a hard time. A very hard time from a lot of people. He's put up with a lot of rubbish, um, and he's maybe risen to it more more than he should have. But boxing's so fickle. You need to remember what this guy's done. You know, he was a brilliant amateur, turn pro, fast track, won absolutely everything that you can win. Um, so he's an amazing fight, and for Jack to operate at that level against him says so much about his ability. Um, I mean, I was blown away. I was ringside for it, and I sat through the first six rounds with my mouth open um, because I expected Josh to, to clean house that night. But um, yeah, number four, um, you know, he's in the running as one of the best junior welterweights in the world. He's going to have more big fights. He needs to get a chance to uh, come up. And I think I don't think we're going to see Josh again at 140. So the whole division's about to open up for him. Um, the one thing that everyone says, and they're absolutely right, is he'll never get a chance to fight undisputed again, or it would be unlikely. You know, for, for everything to fall into place, to, to fight again for all those titles consolidated, I, I think is unlikely for Jack, which which is a bit of a shame. It is. Um, it is. Uh, I, I appreciate that breakdown. I think uh, you're right in saying, you know, he performed like a top five guy, but to give him that number one ranking, of course, not the the ring belt, but even to just give him a number one ranking might be. A I could have seen it though. Uh, to be honest, Pat, I could have, I could have, I could, I could have seen it happening, and I, I wouldn't have, have completely argued against it because Progre, for example, hasn't done much mm-hmm. since Josh beat him. Ramirez hasn't done much since Josh beat him. So there, there's an argument that, that he could have went higher, um, but I, I think the position is 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 fair, and 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 that he's still regarded as an elite level junior welterweight, which is which is the least he proved that night. When are the ratings adjusted? Is it every month? Is it as they no, it's weekly? Weekly. Yeah, needs to be weekly because there's so many shows now. Um, so basically tomorrow morning, um, it will be like Burchell fights tonight, Kiko Martinez, Josh Warrington, all of that. That will come out usually in conjunction with me getting out of bed. Um, there'll be a ratings update and everyone will start to chime in. So there's about 10 of us. Um, rare for everyone to chime in. So sometimes say out of the 10, you'll get seven people coming in and comment on it. Then, uh, And then there's a ratings update. Should get done weekly, sometimes it's every couple of weeks. The ratings have changed, but the actual ratings update on the website might not come out every week. You know, Doug does it and Doug might be busy and has to wait a week, but we always keep it up to date. And there was a Big one came out recently, um, just littered with all the quotes from the emails. It's very, very transparent. It's as transparent, I think, as, in fact, don't think, it's the most transparent rating system in, in world boxing. Um, and a lot of people, you know, want to say that there's there's dirty work afoot or, or decisions are made for this reason or that, but that's a load of nonsense. And, I, and that's proven by the fact that it's, you know, we put everything out there and there's no secrets. You know? yeah. I think there's a lot in boxing right now. I think to wrap things up, I, I'd love to just talk about the, kind of the current state of some of the, you know, the hottest divisions. Of course, we have Josh Taylor, as we just talked about, probably moving up to 147. Terrence yeah. Crawford's there, Errol Spence, Ugas. So there's a lot of fights to make there. The lightweight division also on fire and and very much open, not to disrespect Cambosos, but I feel, um, is he the best man in the division? I don't believe so. I think, you know, mm-hmm. Loma coming back, there's a lot of fights to be made. Then heavyweight, we got Tyson Fury, Dillian White, Usyk, Joshua looming for a comeback. A lot going on, but a guy who's going across weight divisions and I don't even think is getting enough credit, which is crazy to say because he's the face of boxing, is Canelo. I think there's so many people that talk bad against Canelo, say, why isn't he fighting uh, one of the Charlos or Benavides or all this. And, mm-hmm. and it kind of drives me crazy because he fought all the champions at 168. He's willing to go up and down, collect belts. Um, 
why do you feel, or maybe you're one of them? I don't know, but no. what is no. the, uh, there's a lot of old school guys that I talk to uh, out of some of these boxing gyms and they say, you know, Can Canelo doesn't deserve to be talked about as one of the best Mexican fighters ever. No. He, you know, he's, he's overrated. <clears throat> he hasn't fought anyone yet. All this, he fought a lot of <laughs> Ovalev. Where does it end? I mean, why can't we got, give this guy some credit? Yeah, well, it's, um, First of all, I mean, it's just a load of crap. I mean, Canelo is a winner, and that's the problem. Like, he lost to Floyd, um, what, eight years ago, was it? Yeah, eight, nine, eight or nine years ago. But his improvement since that time has been phenomenal. He's one of the – I think he improved more through a period than any other elite-level performer in, in the sport. Um, I noticed these significant jumps, and a lot of this is down to Renoso. Um, who's won Trainer of the Year a couple of times now. Um, big jump when he fought Miguel Cole in terms of his skill level. Um, and then for the Golovkin rematch, people need to remember, get short memories, boxing fans are so fickle. Coming into the first Golovkin fight, I can remember people literally laughing at the idea that Canelo was going in with Golovkin because they viewed it as a mismatch. Now I was at the fight in uh, Vegas, the first fight, and, and I had Golovkin winning that. A bit closer than a lot of people, but I thought he definitely deserved to, to win that decision. But in the rematch, um, Canelo stood in front of him, which if you'd said that that was going to happen when they were initially talking about the first fight, you know, you'd have been put in a straitjacket for suggesting those would, would be his tactics. Like you say, he has then moved up and down divisions, took titles at super middle, light heavy, you know, he's, he's back at light heavy fighting Bevo, who's a much na a naturally bigger guy. Basically, he keeps knocking it out of the park. And for every, for a lot of boxing fans, that's enough reason just to, to cast aspersions on his, his ability and put him down. Um, I watched it with Floyd. You know, I was watching Floyd when he was straight out of the amateurs. Um, once he crossed into the superstar level, which coincided probably with his fight against Oscar, um, he became a target. You know, no matter what you do, it's not good enough. And that's the case with Canelo. It was the case with Floyd. It'll be the case with the guy that follows Canelo. Um, people don't like to see others doing well, or a lot of people don't. And that's what's happening with Canelo. But Canelo, to me, is the number one fighter in the world. Pound for pound, you'll get arguments. I get that. Terence Crawford can't hold a candle to him in terms of opposition faced. Can't hold a candle to him. You know, at the end of the day, Canelo fought Golovkin, and people say he waited that out, but he still fought him when Golovkin was major league. I mean, Golovkin's still a champion today. Terence Crawford's number one opponent is Errol Spence and vice versa, and you can't get those guys in the ring. And that, to me, there's the guys that deserve the, uh, they deserve to, the, the negative criticism, not Canelo, who is, who is doing everything, in my opinion, that those guys haven't done. And Terence Crawford going out and beating Sean Porter, Fair enough, mate. Really, really good win. Really, really good win. Not great. Doesn't get you put in the same sentence as the Pantheon of Welterweights like Leonard or even Oscar. I mean, Oscar De La Hoya was fighting a super fight. I remember watching Oscar come up. Every time you turned round, Oscar had another super fight set up. Pernell Whitaker, straight on to Quarry. Quarry, straight on to Trinidad. Trinidad, straight on to Mosley. Different days. You don't see anything resembling that now. These guys want astronomical money to, to get in the ring with each other that, to be quite frank, they've not earned yet. I know they work hard. I know they put their lives on the line, but you can't expect to ask for, like, whatever, 25, 30 million to fight each other um, when that money's not on the table. You've not done the right things to, to promote the fight. I could go out in the street right now and ask someone who Terms Crawford is, and they won't know. Right. You know, right. When Floyd Mayweather fought Manny Pacquiao, everyone knew who, who those guys were, which is the reason they can claim it and save money. And Canelo is still, um, fair in saying that, like, Benavidez and Charlo, like, why aren't these guys, they, why aren't they fighting each other? You know what I mean? Absolutely. You can't fight everyone at once. He needs, he needs these guys to, to, to rise up and not just be begging for the Canelo sweepstakes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, that's the problem right there, that they just want to hang around. There's a bit of a rumor you might get the fight, and then they'll hang around, and, and they'll look disappointing in a fight that they're, they're tipped to win. You know, they'll, they'll look disappointing in that fight. How, how are you going to build up a fight with Canelo by going 12 rounds with someone where you're a 6-1 or a 7-1 favourite? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. You're not, you're not doing the right things. 
The one fighter I will say um, that I feel like has been forgotten a little bit by the general public, I mean, not boxing, hardcore boxing fans, but Triple G, I feel, although has looked rough in matchups against, you know, Derevinchenko, but got through it, deserves the trilogy fight um, more. I think, I think, you know, he's at a later stage in his career, obviously. Um, but that needs to be closed out in my mind. I just feel like that's a trilogy that needs to happen. And mm-hmm. it's a shame that it hasn't happened already. Canelo, mm-hmm. I'm not faulting him. Um, he's gone up and done tremendous thing moving around divisions. But after he, and, and the crazy thing is we're just assuming he's going to win against Bivol too, which is <laughs> everyone just assumes after he goes and gets that belt, like he should come back to 168 and fight Triple G. I mean, it's not. Yeah, Golov- Golovkin though needs to get past Murata. It's the same, yeah. the same scenario. Exactly. I, I, spoke, I spoke to Golovkin um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I still need to run the story. I'm going to do it on fight week. And I asked him about it. Um, didn't really want to talk about Canelo. Never really does. Um, but I had to push it because fans want to hear that kind of stuff. And I said, do you need this fight? And his answer was no. I think that in champions, this champions pride might come into it, but I think that Golovkin feels, despite the decision in the second fight, I thought Canelo legitimately won the second fight, 7-5. But a lot of people disagree with me. And I know that Golovkin does. Um, I think he's probably convinced himself that, and and I'm, you know, with his own justification that he doesn't need the third fight. And the third fight troubles me for two reasons. Yes, like you said, I think the, the day after he fights Murata, Golovkin turns 40 years old, right? So he has declined, if we're being yeah. honest, since the, sec- since the second fight. And Canelo's only getting better and larger. I also believe that Golovkin at this point is as natural a middleweight as Hagler was. Um, so moving up that extra eight clicks puts him at a disadvantage again. Um, I, I I would watch it. I would look forward to it. By the time it gets to fight week, I'll be completely sold. Um, I don't put the same, I don't know, like big trilogy fights that have happened in the past. But then again, you know, I, I didn't really want to see Fury Wilder 3. I didn't think we needed to see it. And it turned into mayhem and it was fight of the year. So... You could end up with that again. Um, I, I just think that all the cards favor Canelo in, 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 in the in the trilogy fight now. I, I agree. I think I think part of it's um, you know maybe maybe I'm putting too much or too too much too much like fantasy, but I'm thinking you know Triple G, obviously an amazing fighter, champion. Maybe he could pull something out in a trilogy fight for his one last kind of hurrah and make it, make yep. it amazing. And, and that's, you know, I think he's a guy that qualifies to do that. And I guess what I mean is, you know, those legendary moments in the sport require yeah. legendary champions. And he's a guy that I think could pull out a performance. It deserves um, it. It yeah. deserves it. I mean, it reminds me actually of getting into, and I wasn't there at the time, but I just know the history. Uh, if you go into the, the thriller in Manila with Ali and Frazier, you know, a lot of people said, you know, what for going into that? Because Frazier had been battered by George Foreman, didn't look good to me, you know, didn't look great in the in the Ali return. He'd been shaken up by Joe Bugner, um, didn't look great against, I think he fought Jimmy Ellis as well um, in, in the lead up to the fight. And there was no reason to believe that he could put on you know, a, a great performance. You're you're looking at probably the the greatest fight that's that's ever happened ever. Like like you know, not just a heavyweight. A lot of people believe that's the greatest fight of all time. And um, they sucked a lot of life out of each other. But you know, in which in retrospect, you kind of wish they didn't because I don't think either of them were ever the same. But you, what you know, if we're keeping it on the sport angle solely on the sport angle, you wouldn't want to do without that fight in 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 terms of boxing history. So. A man of Golovkin's abilities um, could turn it on and have an abs, you know, might go a step further than Smoking Joe did and, and get the win. You just, you never know. Canelo might have a, a bad night um, or, you know, Golovkin might just have a great night and beat him. Um, a lot of fans still don't believe that Canelo's beat him yet. 
I think we, I think we just helped sell that fight. So maybe after uh, yeah. <laughs> a couple of months go by, we'll see what happens. But long story short, it's an amazing time in boxing. You know, I'm pumped about it. We have the heavyweight division is alive. We have all the um, lower weight classes are doing very well. Lightweight Canelo's moving all over the place, which is fun. So we got, yeah. we got a lot going on in boxing. It's, it's an exciting time. Um, I know you guys just had Larry Holmes on the cover. Is there any sneak peek or hints at what could be coming uh, in the in the next couple months? Well, definitely the next one um, is just finished it is the 100 greatest punchers of the last 100 years. And um, that was the reason that we've um, set about doing that is because we've just celebrated our 100th anniversary. So it makes sense to go about doing that now. Um, that magazine was done 2003, I think. So if you think of all the great punchers that have come along since, we just spoke about one of them, Golovkin. Um, you've had Inouye, you've had Deontay. Yep. So there's been a stack of, of great fighters that didn't make that magazine 20 odd years ago. So fans love that stuff. It goes back to what I was saying about kind of give the fans what they, they, want, to, they want to see. So, yep. Um, I contributed to that, and it was, um, it was a big undertaking, actually. If I'd, if I'd given it a bit more thought, I'd have probably asked Doug to go in a different direction. <laughs> but um, it was uh, it was good. It was great to do it, and I'm sure that'll be, um, that'll be really popular. But that's next. I don't know what's after that yet. I'll find out more about that on Monday. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to check that out. I've, uh, I'm a strong believer that Wilder deserves heavy consideration, maybe for the top five, maybe ever i don't know we'll see but we'll have to check out those rankings when they um, come he <laughs> didn't you know I'll give you an exclusive he didn't quite get that high but he's certainly not low i can assure you of that but um it's just a lot of the guys if, if you're still within the last 100 years right you'll still get guys like archie moore who knocked out more fighters than anyone in history you'll get yeah. sadler sandy sadler who's whose knockout percentage i think was was in the late 80s against you know, stacks and stacks of Hall of Famers. So you need to factor in, yes, Wilder's got an amazing punch and uh, an incredible knockout ratio, but who has he knocked out compared to these guys? So that's the kind of questions that you're asking yourself constantly. Anoy um, is another fighter that's um, that's went pretty high because, you know, he's went through four divisions and he's still a chilling puncher. So, yeah, there's a few. There's some some terrific punchers that have, that have come along in the last 20 years that have been added into all the old school fighters. It's a, it's, a, it's a great magazine. We're really proud of it. Yeah, super excited for that. It is it is kind of more complex than you would think in terms of uh, those rankings because you got to kind of decide, like you said, is it is it quality of knockouts, knockout yeah. ratio? Um, right. You know, typically the way I think of it and the reason why Wilder is very, very, would be extremely high on my list, if not number one, is the one shot just turn the lights off power because you look at a yes. guy like Mike Tyson who everyone has you know holds him in regard of having amazing power which he does but a lot of his knockouts were you know combinations they weren't one punch out of the blue like Wilder yeah. where there's you know there's hardly any damage done yet he's losing all the rounds like against Luis Ortiz for instance yeah you know, and, yep. and then it's just boom it only takes one and it's just another universe. Um, yep. There's all different ways to kind of rank knockouts or, or, or power. Yeah, so it was, it was finding the balance and it, it wasn't, it's exactly the same with Julian Jackson or Gerald McClellan. They the guys could switch off the lights in much the same way. And then what you're looking at is, is, uh, is, is quality of opposition. And some of these guys that were talking like Joel Lewis, and like I say, Archie Moore, Sandy Sadler, um, you know, if you look at the resume, it, it's insanity. It's like it's like it's like a dozen a dozen Hall of Famers faced, and Wilder doesn't have that. Then you get someone like like Deontay Ernie Shavers who could sparkle someone in exactly the same way, one punch, boom, dead. You know, he's, he's losing the whole fight, knocks you dead. But then who did Ernie Shavers really knock out? Ernie Shavers is largely remembered, as disconcerting as it may be, is largely remembered for almost knocking out Larry Holmes, not getting him out. Um, if you look at the guys that he did knock out, 
it's not the same assortment of Hall of Famers. So then you need to ask yourself, if Ernie Shavers, if Deontay Wilder were in there against, let's say, for example, let's play a bit of fun here, right? Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, George Foreman, if that's the guys that Deontay's in with, is he still switching them all off the same way? Right now, to me, no. And that's that's where that's where and when you're doing a 100, 100 fighter rating, that's where you that's where you actually question yourself. But um, and I don't want to upset the Deontay Wilder fans; they get mad at me as it is. <laughs> but um, but the uh, but he's high. He's, he's got a very 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 high spot. In fact, I think out of the last in the last twenty years, I think he's got the highest spot of, of anyone. Which 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 says a ton about him. The guy is he's a terrifying puncher. Absolutely terrifying. If he catches you clean, you know you don't need a ten count. You need a you need a thousand count. Um, if Deontay <laughs> if Deontay clips you properly, you, you've had it. Yeah, I'm not sure there's anyone else around other than Tyson Fury that's able to get up from those type of shots. It's just the the perfect dancing partner. I spoke to Tyson about it, and he said, um, he said, look, he's like, it's easy, easy to beat me, easiest thing in the world. You just need to you just need to put me down and keep me down, and. Uh, it's okay saying it. it's easy to say it, but obviously if Deontay has knocked you down, I mean, he, he scored, not all the knockdowns were ultra concussive, but at least two of them, right? So the the second knockdown in the first fight and the first knockdown in the third fight, wow, just amazing that Tyson was able to survive those moments. I mean, the, the, the third fight, the actual punch went right through his entire torso. I, I, I still don't know how how he made it to his feet. He's some man. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I think uh, the way what's interesting, and I'm not taking anything away from Tyson Fury at all. This might be even a contrarian view, but there is so much recency bias just naturally in boxing in any sport. Mm-hmm. People view Tyson Fury as he can't be beat. He's he's unbeatable at this time yep. until he does get beaten um and i'm not gonna i'm not saying that he's gonna lose to dillian white he might never lose but i think we've seen this in the past a la george foreman we thought he was indestructible ali came around so don't be surprised if tyson fury does fall oh, no. And, and no i agree with you i agree with you and, and the trainer thought that because he survives a deontay wilder bomb means that he can survive anything as garbage um, because Anthony Joshua, let's see if that fight ever comes off. AJ can crack big time. And it just takes you to get, you know, I asked Tyson, when you went down off the, the first shot in the third fight, how were your legs, you know, where were you at? And he said, legs strong instantly. Like when I was on the floor, I knew where I was, you know, I, I was, I, I knew I was going to get up and I knew I was fine. Um, but one day, whether it, whether it be Anthony Joshua or another heavyweight. Um, is Usyk able to give him? I don't think, I, I'd be I'd be shocked if Usyk, particularly with one big, you know, I would be flabbergasted, I'd be, that would blow me away. Or does Anthony, do you think he's capable of winning? Usyk, I think he's, I, I wouldn't pick him, but look, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know if you've got the time, but I'll, I'll try and fit this in quickly. When, when Joshua fought Klitschko, so that's 2017. Yusik, I think, is just coming into the WBSS then. And that, even though that was a glorious win for Joshua, it kind of exposed a lot of frailties. You know, he was knocked down in the fight. He took his time to get back into the fight. People forget that because he came back and had a great stoppage win. But that night I was talking to a friend of mine who was there watching it with me, and I said, Yusik's the guy that's going to beat him, that's going to beat Joshua, because it was clear that he was going to be at cruiserweight, mop up, and then move on to heavyweight. And as the fight get closer, I reneged on that prediction because Yusik hadn't looked good against Chisora and Chaz Witherspoon. And I wish I never. I wish I didn't, because every single person at ring picked Joshua to win that fight. And then I reversed myself. But it was it was clear that he was going to be a problem for heavyweights because what he actually accomplished against Joshua, and I was at that fight, is that people were saying that Joshua was too big. And when you look back at the fight now, the problem for Joshua is he's too big. Usyk's agility and movement and speed and engine and ring craft 
they're a nightmare for him because Josh is not able to, to get on top of him quickly enough because the guys all around him look a middleweight. And he, he's just, you know, I think that the rematch is super dangerous for him. I think he's got it all to do. I favour Usyk strongly. Against Tyson, it's a different, it's a different style confrontation for Tyson. But the mistake Tyson, I think, could make is get in and kind of take a liberty against the smaller man. He needs to watch himself. I, I wouldn't write Usyk off against anyone. I don't think that's smart. Well, we'll leave the oh, on that, uh, Tom. This was an awesome uh, chat with you. Really appreciate it. 100 years welcome, anniversary man. of the Ring magazine. Iconic. Um, super excited to see how this year pans out and maybe who else collects a ring belt uh, in the coming months. But thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome, Pat. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. The Pod Matrix.